I'm Pastor Michael. I want to welcome our visitors. We're so glad that you're here. We are doing a sermon series through the Gospel of John. And we've been going systematically chapter by chapter. And we are now on, uh, we are now at the final night of Jesus's earthly ministry. His last night with his disciples, he spends in the upper room teaching them. And in the morning, or that very night, he's going to be arrested and put on trial, and then in the morning, he's going to be crucified. And so I want, to, um, I want you to turn to page 4 in your bulletins. We're going to read John chapter 14. We're going to read verses 15 through 26. Jesus continues his teaching. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is the word of God. So... We are looking at what is called the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse um, is Jesus' teachings in the upper room. It begins at the end of chapter 13, and it stretches all the way to the end of chapter 17, which is a fairly long passage, four and a half chapters. It is, in fact, the longest sustained speech by Jesus in the Gospels. And in the farewell discourse, Jesus announces to his disciples that after three years of ministry with them, after three years of being together and living together, he is going to leave them. He is going to depart from them 
And in fact, he's going to the cross. The disciples respond in shock and distress because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense on a historical level because how can the Messiah leave? The Messiah is supposed to come and stay and establish the kingdom of God and make all things right. And it doesn't make any sense on a personal level. What about all of this time that they have spent together? Was it all for nothing? Will they never see their master again? Jesus answers, and again, it takes him four and a half chapters to fully unpack this answer because there's so many layers to it. But Jesus' answer is one of the most beautiful, it is one of the most comforting teachings in Christianity. Because his answer to the disciples is that you will see me. Because I will come back to you. And I will be with you forever. Because I am sending you my spirit. And when my spirit comes, working through you, the kingdom of God will be established on earth. That's the answer. And so we're going to look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which is one of the most profound doctrines in the Bible. And we're going to look at this over the next several weeks because Jesus teaches on this not only here in John chapter 14, but again in John chapter 15, and then again in John chapter 16. And so we're going to have many bites at the apple, which is a good thing because it takes the pressure off of me so that I don't have to squeeze everything into this one sermon, which would be impossible. There's too much. So we're going to stay on this for a while. Now, before we start, I want you to know, I want you to know how life-giving this teaching is. Because I know, and I know this from speaking to so many of you, I know that for many of you in this room, you have been a Christian for a long time. And at first, when you first became a Christian, there was this initial burst of joy and energy. But that was a long time ago. And now your heart has grown cold. And you feel barren. You feel spiritually dry. And your your faith is wavering. And you wonder if Jesus is even real. If you just made it up all in your head. I want you to know that Christianity is not simply an intellectual concept. It is not just a series of doctrines that you can learn in a classroom. I want you to know that it is a living and breathing thing. It is an intimate experience of the presence of Jesus in your life That's what Jesus is teaching. That's what he's offering to us. And when you have it, there'll be incredible power in your life. There'll be an explosion of joy and fruitfulness in your life. And so, what is this? What is this thing? Let's look at it. I have four points. Here's my outline. We're going to look at the ministry of the Spirit. We're going to see, first of all, that he is the Spirit of Christ. Secondly, we're going to see that he's the spirit of truth. 
Third, he is the spirit of holiness. And then finally, he is the spirit is in us. So let's begin. Number one, he is the spirit of Christ. And we're going to look at verse 16, which is a fairly well-known verse. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So here you have all the persons of the Trinity. You have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Spirit, whom Jesus calls another helper. Now the word helper there is the Greek word parakletos. Parakletos is a Greek word that is so rich, it's so multifaceted, that there really isn't a, a, a single English equivalent for it. And in fact... If you look at all the different English translations, virtually every translation renders it with a different word. So in our translation, the ESV, it's rendered helper. In other translations, he's the comforter, he's the counselor, he's the advocate. There's one translation that gives up even trying to translate it and just renders it um, in the English transliteration, which is paraclete. So what's going on here? What do we make of this? I think it's helpful if we break the word up into parts. So in the first part, it's the Greek word para. And para means beside or along the side of. And then the second part is the Greek word kaleo. Kaleo means to speak or to call out. And when you put the two parts together, para kaleo is describing somebody who is coming alongside of you who is walking along with you, speaking to you, encouraging you, teaching you like a mentor, like a friend. Now notice, Jesus says he is another parakletos. He uses the word another. The word another there is very significant because the spirit is not just a parakletos, he is another Parakletos. Do you see what Jesus is saying? You see, there is a first parakletos. Who is that? That's Jesus himself. And then the Spirit is another parakletos. In other words, Jesus is saying the Spirit is another Christ. That's what he's saying. He is another Christ. So that when you have the Spirit, you have Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. You have him. You have him in in an intimate and personal way. Notice the, the language that Jesus uses throughout our passage. He says that, he uses this language of uh, dwelling and inhabiting. That's very intimate language because when you live with someone, and David, you know, David, he talked about this in the, uh, in the introduction. But when you live with someone, and I'm not just talking about, you know, living with a roommate for a year or two. That can be a very superficial arrangement. But when you make a life with someone, like with a spouse or with a family member, when you live with them, you get to know them, right? You know their innermost thoughts. You know the the, the rhythms of their life. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He says, I will come and dwell with you. I will make my home with you. Do you know how astonishing this is? 
Jesus is not just promising his disciples that they will have vivid memories of him. You know, sometimes this is the way uh, people talk about the dead sometimes. You know, when people die, sometimes people say, they're still with me. But they don't actually mean that the person is still alive and with them. They're talking about the memory of them. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about an ongoing, active, living, and breathing, personal relationship with him. That's what he's saying. I wonder if we really believe this. I wonder if we really think this could be true. You know, it's one thing to know something about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit on a theological level, but it is an entirely different thing to actually have Jesus, to know Him, to have a relationship with Him. Let me give you an analogy. Um, Many of you know that uh, the Christian thinker and pastor who has had the most influence on me is Tim Keller. I have read so many of his books. I have listened to so many of his sermons over the years, over the decades. He has had a huge, huge impact on my thinking, on my ministry. Did you know that I have actually heard Tim Keller speak in person on two separate occasions I was sitting in the audience and Tim Keller was speaking and I could see him. It was thrilling. It was amazing. Did you furthermore know that I have once met him in person? What happened was, this was back when I was in Boston, Tim Keller was going to meet with a group of PCA pastors at a restaurant and I was a pastoral intern at the time, so I was allowed to tag along. And so what happened is I got to the restaurant five minutes early, and who should be standing there in the waiting area but Tim Keller himself in the flesh. This is the moment that I had been dreaming of for so many years. I was like, should I hug him? Should I just pour out my heart to him? What should I do? So I went up to him. He looked at me. He said, hi, I'm Tim. I said, hi, I'm, I'm Michael. He was much taller than I had expected. And then we shook hands. And then that was it. I was so awestruck. I was so tongue-tied in being in his presence that we just stood there in awkward silence for five minutes. <laughs> I blew it. I regret it. Here's my point. That's the extent of how much I know Tim Keller. I know him from a distance, but I don't know him personally. I don't have a friendship with him. I don't have a relationship with him. And I certainly don't live with him and have a life with him the way his wife, Kathy Keller, does. I think that many of you have a relationship with Jesus the way I have a relationship with Tim Keller. We know about him. 
We've read about him and heard about him, but we don't actually know him. We know him the way we know a historical figure like Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. We've read about his great deeds in some book. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ is promising something far, far greater. He's saying that when I send you my spirit, you will know me like you know a friend, like you know a spouse. It's astonishing. It's breathtaking. How do we get there? That leads me to my second point. He's the spirit of truth. This is what Jesus calls him in verse 17. He is the spirit of truth. What does that mean? You see, it means that the Spirit opens our eyes to the truth of Jesus. This is what Jesus says in verse 26 in our passage. The Spirit will teach you all things. This is what Jesus says in chapter 15, verse 26. The Spirit will testify about me. This is what he says in, verse, in chapter 16, verse 12. The Spirit will guide you into all truth. And so what is this truth that the Spirit will guide us, will testify to us? It is the truth that Jesus is the Savior and the King. He's the Savior and the King. That's the truth. I think for many of us in this room, we already believe that. We already know that. That's why we're Christians. That's why we're here in this room, or most of us. But that truth doesn't change you. That truth doesn't convict you and move you. It's just an inert truth. It's inert. It doesn't have any power. It doesn't have any beauty in your life. Imagine a woman... And this woman, one day, she inherits a piece of jewelry from her grandmother. And she looks at it, and it's nice. But she doesn't know what it's worth, and so she just puts it on top of her dresser. And then she sort of forgets about it. You know, she doesn't really think about it. Occasionally, it's misplaced. She loses track of it. She'll say, oh, where is that thing? Oh, there it is. She doesn't really pay it any attention. One day, she decides to take it to a jeweler to see if it's worth anything. The jeweler gets it. He sits down at his workstation. He puts on his little eyepiece, and he's looking at it. He's looking at the way the light refracts. He's noticing the colors and the textures. And then bit by bit, as he's studying it, as he's looking at it, suddenly he drops his eyepiece. His breathing becomes labored. His heart begins to beat. Beads of sweat form on his face because he realizes this is a long-lost piece of jewelry that used to belong to the royal family. And it is ancient, the craft of which has vanished from the face of the earth. Nobody knows how to do it anymore. It is matchless in its beauty. It is one of a kind. It is absolutely priceless. And the jeweler, he's sitting there at his workstation and he's, he's trembling with excitement because he realizes 
this piece of jewelry that he's holding in his hand is worth more than all the jewelry he has ever sold in his shop for the last 30 years put together. And he is enthralled at the beauty of it. And when the woman comes to understand the true value of what this thing is, she is astounded. She is thunderstruck. And she realizes that she has not been living in accordance with the value of what she has had. And so her whole life changes because she sees the value of it now. That's what the Spirit does. That's the work of the Spirit. It takes the truths of the Bible, which seems rather dull and ordinary, and then it lights that truth on fire. So that it becomes this bright, burning glory in your life. So that you see the wickedness, the vileness of your sins, and how worthy you are of judgment and death. So that you see the majesty and the beauty of Christ, that the Son of God, the Prince of Heaven, should lay down His life for you. That's the ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit vivifies the truth of Christ so that it is no longer just some inert data. It is a power in your life. Third point, He is the Spirit of holiness. In verse 26, Jesus calls Him the Holy Spirit. Now, we have sort of come to think of that word holy as part of the name But actually, it's the same grammatical construction as when Jesus says, the spirit of truth. So he is the spirit of holiness. And so what does this mean? It means that to walk with the spirit is to walk in holiness. It's to have holiness in your life. I want you to know how vitally important this is. Here's the question. How do we invite the spirit into our life? How do you experience the intimacy and the presence of Jesus in your life? Because that's the most precious treasure that you could possess. If you are a Christian, if you you call on the name Jesus, you should so deeply want that. How can you have the Spirit of Christ in your life? Here's the answer. In verse 15, all the way at the top, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the answer. Jesus says, if you obey me, my spirit will come to you. Notice, look at verse 23. And I want you to notice here the logic of what Jesus says. Listen to this. He says, if anyone loves me, He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying that the Spirit comes when you keep his word, when you obey his law. That's how you get the Spirit. Now some of you at this point are saying, hold on, wait a minute. I thought we're saved by grace and not by the law. And so how can you say that the Spirit only comes in our obedience? That sounds like it's conditional. 
Here's the answer. Listen to me. The Spirit is not an impersonal force like in Star Wars. The Spirit is a living person. He's a living person. And you have a relationship with the Spirit the same way you have a relationship with any person. Imagine one day I said to Christina, I said, Christina, I'm tired of following and keeping your laws about our marriage. From this day on, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to travel on my own. I'm tired of having to always bring you with me. And so some days, I'm just going to disappear, I'm not, and I'm not going to let you know where I am. I, and I'm tired of, of always having to make decisions together about money. I'm going to spend money any way that I want. And I want to see other women. I want to be with other women. Tired of this rule about exclusivity in the marriage. But otherwise, I want to stay married to you. And when I come home, if I come home, I want the same relationship that we've always had. What would she say to me? She would say to me, I don't think you really love me. You don't care about me. You don't respect me. You don't love me. You're trampling on our marriage. I want you to know that the commandments of the Bible are not just arbitrary rules. They are the expression of a relationship. You cannot have a relationship without laws. If somebody is constantly stealing from you, if somebody is constantly lying to you and trampling you, if somebody is constantly violating your laws, you can't have a relationship with them. You can't have a friendship with them. This is why Jesus says in verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Because love and obedience always goes together. Because if you love someone, keeping their laws is not a burden, it's not an imposition, it's a joy. It's a delight because you love them. And so here is a diagnostic question. Is the reason you feel so spiritually dry, is the reason that God feels so distant from you, is it because there are significant areas in your life that are in contradiction to the law of God? And let me here get specific. Let me get uncomfortably specific. Let's talk about money. Do you practice the radical generosity that is described in the Bible? Or do you basically see your money as your own? And you might say, well, how do I know if I'm being generous? The standard in the Bible is to give away 10%, at least 10% of your income away. Let's talk about relationships. Do you forgive? Do you seek reconciliation with people who have wronged you? Or do you hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness? Let's talk about work. Are you a person of integrity and honesty 
in your workplace? Or do you cut corners? Do you engage in shady business at work? Let's talk about sex. This is a big one, especially in our modern culture. Do you practice sexual holiness in your life? And let me get even more specific than that. Do you sleep with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend? Do you look at pornography? I want you to listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.18. It's very interesting. He says, flee from sexual immorality. For do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have for God? Listen to this again. He says, flee from sexual morality. Why? Here's the reason. For do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You see, what Paul is saying is that when you violate the law of God, when you break the law, when it comes to sex or when it comes to anything else, You are wounding the spirit. You are grieving the spirit. And you will lose his closeness. You will lose the intimacy and the presence of Jesus in your life because that's how relationships work. And some of you are saying, well, then what about grace? What about grace? Doesn't Jesus say in verse 16, the Spirit will be with you forever? Isn't that saying that the Spirit can never be taken away, that the Spirit will never leave us, never abandon us? And the answer is, absolutely. You receive the Spirit by grace. In John 7, 39, Jesus says, you receive the Spirit by faith, not by obedience to the law. But listen, once again, the Spirit's presence in your life is not a static thing. It is a living relationship. And that means, because it's a living relationship, you can have more or less of the Spirit in your life, depending on your life, depending on your obedience. This is why the New Testament is constantly exhorting Christians. And by the way, if you're a Christian... You have the Spirit. You cannot, you cannot confess Christ unless the Spirit is working in your heart. And so the New Testament is constantly telling Christians who have the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. You could have more and more of the Spirit. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to make a distinction between the legal status of having the Spirit, which is by grace, and the experience of a relationship with Christ which depends on your obedience. You see, it's sort of like this. You can be a son to your parents. That's your legal status. But at the same time, you could be estranged from your parents because you have a broken relationship with them so that you never talk to them. I know that this is a hard word to hear. And before we move on, I want to give you an encouraging word. And I want to give you one of my favorite illustrations from the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Um, One of the singular pleasures that I'm now experiencing is that now that my boys are older, every night, or I try every night, to read to them from the books of Narnia. Right now we're on book three, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which in my opinion is the best book in the Narnia series. 
Um, but you need to know that Narnia, the stories of Narnia are an allegory of the Christian life. And Aslan the Lion is the Christ figure of the stories. And when you read the stories from that perspective, it's incredibly moving. There's all these times as I'm reading to my boys, my voice kind of quivers and, and breaks because it's so beautiful, it's so emotional, you know? And then my boys will look at me all quizzically and wonder what's going on. And I, and I say to them, later you will understand. <laughs> so the illustration comes from the second book, which is Prince Caspian, which in my opinion is the least good of all the Narnia books. <laughs> you can quibble with me later if you disagree. <laughs> but here's the story. What happens is that the four Pevensey children... They're trying to make their way to the battle, which is very important. It's a critical battle. They need to get there. But what what ends up happening is they take a series of wrong turns, and then they get terribly lost. And so they're feeling very discouraged. They don't know what to do. And then one night, Aslan, who, again, is the Christ figure of the stories, he wakes Lucy up. And he tells her, that she is to ask her siblings that they are to follow him. But the thing is, although Lucy can see him, they will not be able to see him. And so she wakes them up. Peter, Susan, Edmund, they hear about this. They can't see Aslan anywhere. They're full of doubts. But they decide that they're going to follow him anyway. And so Aslan leads them down to this steep ravine, to this steep cliffside. And then, to their horror, he starts to go down this narrow path that winds down into the canyon between these enormous rocks. And it looks dangerous. It looks unwelcoming. And the children, they all hesitate. And they're afraid. And they want to turn back but they resolve to keep going, to keep following Aslan. And as they're going down the path, they begin to see very faintly a shadow walking in front of them. And then later on, as they continue down the path, they begin to see the outlines of a shape in front of them, although they can't quite make it out in the moonlight. And then at last, they see him. He's Aslan. He's the one they've been looking for through the whole story. And I think C.S. Lewis here is telling us something really quite profound. He is telling us that seeing Christ comes after following Jesus consistently for a time. He's saying seeing Christ comes after you follow him consistently for a time. Look with me to verse 21. Jesus says, If you love me and keep my commandments, this is his promise, I will manifest myself to you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying you get more of the Spirit as you walk by the Spirit. You get more of Christ. You get more of his presence in your life as you obey him. What a wonderful promise. Are you feeling discouraged today? 
Do you feel spiritually dry? Don't give up. Keep following Him. Keep seeking His face. Keep coming to church and being part of the body of Christ. Keep praying. Keep reading the scriptures. Keep doing acts of mercy and evangelism. All of these disciplines of grace, keep doing them and keep doing them. And Christ will surely come to you. And you will feel his presence. And you will feel his pleasure and his delight in you. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that marvelous? Last point. The Spirit is in us. Look with me to verse 17. Jesus says, The Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says that the Spirit is in you. He says in you. I want you to know that that is commonly misunderstood, that expression. Jesus is not talking about the physical location of the Spirit. As if, you know, where is the Spirit? Oh, He's inside our bodies. When Jesus uses that word in, He is saying that we are united with the Spirit the way a man and woman are united in marriage. It's a relational metaphor. He's saying that through the Spirit, we are united with Christ. I want you to know how astonishing this is. Union with Christ. Union with Christ is the most precious treasure that can be imagined. Let me give you just a sense of this. Look with me to verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus says, I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I want you to know that we could spend the rest of eternity studying this, thinking about this, and we will never reach the bottom of it. It is infinitely deep. Today, we're just going to wade into the shallows of it. And I think it helps to break it up into two parts. Let's look at the first part. Jesus says, I am in my Father. This is the union between the Father and the Son. The union between the Father and the Son, what does that look like? One of my favorite verses is John chapter 1, verse 18. I love this verse. I've uh, spoken about this a couple of times before. But John 1.18 says this, The Son is in the bosom of the Father. The Son is in the bosom of the Father. See, what is the bosom? The bosom is the breast. The bosom is the, is the chest area. And Jesus here is giving us a glimpse into the life of the Trinity. And the picture that this verse is giving us is of the Son laying down his head on the bosom of his father. It's a picture of absolute intimacy and tenderness. And you need to understand that the bosom is an intimate space that no one except the members of your family have access to. You see, only my boys can come up to me and sit on my lap and lay their head on my bosom. Only my boys. 
But if one of you were to try, (laughs) if one of you, after worship service, were to try and sit on my lap and lay your head on my bosom, I would say to you, whoa, I'm sorry. We don't have that kind of relationship. But my boys can. Because they're my sons. I'm their father. This is the relationship that the father and the son has had from all of eternity. John 17, verse 24, Jesus says, Father, you have loved me before the foundations of the world. In John 14, verse 10, Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And so that's the first part. It's the inner life of the Trinity. It's breathtaking. Now let's look at the second part. This is almost beyond human comprehension. In verse 20, Jesus says, I am in my Father, and you are in me, And I am in you. What is Jesus saying? He is saying that when we have the Spirit, we are brought into the life of the Trinity. And through the Spirit, we are united to Christ the way Christ is united to the Father. And because we are united to Christ. Everything that belongs to Him now belongs to us because that's how union works. This is why Jesus says at the end of verse 19, because I live, you also will live. Jesus says, I live, therefore you live. That's union language. Let me close with a final, a final picture, a final illustra- illustration One day, I was taking a walk with Noah. This was years ago when Noah was only a little toddler. And uh, the thing is, I have a little bit of a phobia of dogs. So every time I see a dog, I sort of flinch. And unfortunately, Noah had picked up on that. And so he became deathly afraid of dogs. One day, Noah and I were walking along this path And this enormous dog that was like at the height of my chest came bounding, galloping towards us. And Noah was just absolutely terrified. He shot up his arms and he said, Daddy, Daddy, hold me. He said, hold me. And so I scooped him up into my arms and I held him tight. And then do you know what happened next? I kid you not. The dog came to us and he started jumping on us. He started like like bouncing on us with his paws like this. And Noah was just beside himself with terror. He was screaming. He was crying. And the whole time I was holding him in my arms and I was shielding him like this and I was whispering into his ear, Noah, Noah, you're safe. You're safe in my arms. Because you see, I had enveloped him in my arms. The only way that the dog could hurt Noah was that he would have to first hurt me. 
You see, because Noah and I were, were united, my life became Noah's life. My death became his death. I want you to know that on the cross, when Jesus was stretched out on the cross, he enveloped his arms around us. And his death became our death. The death that we should have died because of our sin and our rebellion, Jesus died in our place. And his life became our life. The eternal life that belongs only to Jesus because only Jesus has truly and fully obeyed the Father forever becomes our life. Because we are united to him. That's the gospel. A lot of people, for a lot of people, this is all just theoretical knowledge. But when you have the Spirit, it becomes a bright, shining truth burning in your life. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. See, that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit pours. Not a trickle. Not these carefully measured streams. The Spirit pours and pours and pours the love of God in Jesus Christ for us so that you know Him, so that you have Him. That's the ministry of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess our hearts are cold and distant from you. And though we might praise you with our lips, our hearts are far from you. Revive our hearts. Give us the Holy Spirit. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Lord, what we want most of all, most of all, is Christ, to know him in his death and resurrection. Give us more and more of him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.